Welcome, I'm Doug Morgan, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense, where we hunt for the truth in the topics you're not supposed to talk about, Christianity and politics. I was sent a video the other day of a person trying to make a case that they should not have to work for their basic needs. <laughs> yeah, these needs include a place to live, food, healthcare, internet access, clothing, and a little spending money. <laughs> that, that was their needs. They had a right to that. All of this was to be given to them just because they were alive. The thinking is that if, if people don't have the pressure of working and paying for their needs, they'll be happier and more productive in doing whatever they want to do. Unfortunately, this is not the ramblings of some TikToker striving to get attention. It is an idea that has actually been championed by candidates for the President of the United States. But the problem is, it's not a biblical idea at all. Genesis 3, 17 through 19 says that because of the fall, we will have to work for our food and, and for our needs. But these people are saying that because they exist, they are entitled to or, or have the right to free stuff. There has even been one woman that, that sued her parents. Believe it or not, I mean, look this up. There, there's a woman who sued her parents because they did not ask her if she wanted to be born. Because she did not, that uh, her parents did not ask her permission to be born. Now she has to work for her food and shelter. So she sued them. Here's an example of, of what I'm talking about when it comes to this entitlement mentality. This guy named Indy, he lives in, in Sri Lanka and is a writer for indica.medium.com. And he says, I have worked since I was 14 years old, but I've never worked to live. I worked for money, but never for my next meal, my health, or a, a roof over my head. I've worked for better housing or food, but never so that I wouldn't die. Why should I? Why should anyone? No one should work for a living. It's inhumane and bad economics to boot. We're not wild animals, he says. What is the point of civilization? Basic public services should be universal. Here, here, here it goes again. Health, housing, food, education, internet. This is both the right thing to do and the economic thing to do. Eliminating the pressure of bare survival alleviates such human suffering and unleashes a mass of human potential. What is the point of leaving the jungle to just live on a capitalistic one? Our current system of work or your child will starve is a cruel psychological experiment played on billions of people and notably not on the rich. And it has failed, he says. 
It it has its place in history as an improvement, but we must keep moving forward. In its late stages, what has this capitalism produced? We have cities full of grand apartments that no one lives in. Backwards nations like America have expensive healthcare systems that don't deliver health to their population. In terms of food, there's a Dunkin' Donuts on every corner. And both obesity and millions of children missing meals. So you, you see here that at its core here, this is an anti-capitalism rant. Do you hear it? He continues by saying this. This is economic nonsense. Economics is, fundamentally, about the allocation of resources. The best use of widely distributed human talent is not to have 90% of people scrambling to live. People can start businesses, make art, make love, raise families, all if they simply have room to breathe. People are also less inclined to crime, to violence, and of great interest to the state to unrest if they're simply not so stressed and hemmed in all the time. These public, basic public needs are most economically served as public goods. This also goes a ways toward correcting the economic travesties that raising children, helping elders, and not destroying the environment have zero economic value because they do not contribute to the GDP. Instead of a, uh, a, a rapturous system of, of forever growth, indistinguishable from cancer, we can have a fuller expression of humanity. <laughs> Sorry, I just can't keep, my, keep a straight face on this one. <laughs> We can have fuller lives, full of people, full of leisure, full of time. At the same time, we will not be forced to contribute to the looting of the environment simply so that we may live another day. See, see if, if we, what he's saying here is, if we did not have capitalism, that ugly capitalism, we would be happier and we would not be killing the environment. He goes on to say that the question then is how do we pay for this? The more relevant question is how are we paying for it now? Take healthcare as a relevant example. We'll see how relevant it is here. Public healthcare is cheaper and more effective than privatized. Places like, get this, Cuba, Vietnam, and Sri Lanka have better healthcare systems than the horrendously expensive and inadequate one in the U.S. Look at public health, the most basic health measure, and how rich, developed countries have conclusively shat the bed. Meanwhile, poor nations, by pooling their meager resources, have proven themselves rich in health. What? What is he talking about here? Cuba, Vietnam, Sri Lanka have better health care systems? I mean, come on. 
our healthcare system, it has some problems. I mean, we've, we've covered it in a number of different podcasts recently, but he's going to use those three as better healthcare systems than ours. He says, if we can do it for health, we can do it for housing, for food, for internet. If internet was, I, I don't get that. If internet was a basic right, what happened before 1980, let's say? Did it just suddenly become a basic right? He says these things will all be cheaper than the wily ineffective systems that we have now. <laughs> but he doesn't say why they're cheaper. I mean, someone has to pay for them to be cheaper, don't they? He says, but we but but won't people stop working? Please remember that people raised these same objections to enslavement. <laughs> Oh boy. If your economy depends on people working certain jobs or they'll starve, well, you're doing it wrong. Maybe clothes should cost more and you should change them less. Maybe eat less meat. I don't know. But your convenience to have people work for you does not give you the right to hold their life in the balance. So... So an employee now is a slave. It's what, it's what he's saying here. And if they don't work for you, they die. And, and do you see here where if you work, it's your fault for eating meat. You don't have to work if you don't eat meat. And, and changing your clothes every day. I can't believe you want to change your clothes every day. He says, will some people stay home? and not work? Yes, and that's fine. Our moral repugnance towards laziness ends up as blanketed punishment upon the poor. What do you think anyone that lives off interest income does? They don't work. This is fine. If someone wants to live with the basics, that's not for you to judge. Frankly, most artists and prophets would appear this way. Your right to feel superior to someone else is not worth taking away the basic survival rights of everyone. So, so if you don't give someone free money and stuff, then, then what he's saying is, then, you, then you're judging them. You're feeling superior to them and you're killing them. So we just need to give them free money and stuff. He says, most people won't stop working. I worked poopy jobs cleaning toilets in almost every single one for years. <laughs> Why did I work? For the extras. These are hugely motivating. Whereas working for survival is frankly the opposite. As a teenager, I worked for money, for a bit of extra choice. I worked so that instead of my packed lunch, I could eat at Taco Bell with my friends. WTF, Was what was I thinking? My Amma's sandwiches were way better. <laughs> he says, I worked so I could buy Tommy Hilfiger instead of what my mom bought me in one stressful batch of JCPenney. I worked for choice. I was quite motivated by that. Desire for the extras is entirely enough to power our economy. Oh, yeah, sure it is. Behold, Apple, Amazon. Netflix, these are all fundamentally extras for the, 
the jobs that really suck. Maybe they'll, they'll have to, to pay people more. Right now, we pay bankers and white-collar workers obscene amounts of, you know, of, of money for jobs that, that, that don't even suck. Take, take it from them. <laughs> Man, you see, we, we need to take it from those that are working. You see what they're saying? We need to take the money. It says, he says right here, take it from them. We need to take the money from people who are working and give it to those that aren't. He goes on to say, perhaps you could justify this capitalist jungle as being required to motivate adults. Yet that's not where the burden falls. Children do not choose their parents. Here we go. And where they fall in the law of club and fang, how is survival economics even remotely ethical to impose on children? It's for the children that we do this. I added that little part, (laughs) but he says, why should a baby be unable to get formula because their parents can't afford it? Perhaps their parents need to be taught a lesson cruel, but what we are teaching, but, but what are we teaching the baby? All they know is hunger. I mean, come on. The Bible talks about churches helping the poor. It also talks about there all, there's always going to be poor. He says, why should a child trying to study be rendered without health care because their parent lost a job? Why should teenagers be rendered homeless? Furthermore, why should battered women and children be forced to stay in violent homes because there's no safe place for them to go? These are public needs served by good public for public good. You see... What he doesn't get to here is that we live in a fallen world and bad things happen. The Bible says that when bad things happen in our lives, it builds perseverance, which in turn builds character, which, of course, gives us hope. He says a system where people are not worried about survival will lead to thrival. We will unlock so much human potential. Human talents are not concentrated in the rich. They are simply suppressed in the poor. Give a poor child the same basic security as the rich uh, as the rich one, and they'll blow our minds. They'll enrich the world. Call it the economy if you want, but I call it something else. This is simply living better than a wild animal. This is civilization. No one should work for a living. Then we can have life in abundance. Oh boy. You see, we have life in abundance, but in Christ, not not in free stuff. But did you hear him say that, that people will be less lazy if given free stuff? Well, in fact, there are people, not just him, who believe that laziness doesn't even exist. Devin Price, he's a, he's a social psychologist and author of Laziness Doesn't Ex- or Does Not Exist. And he says, first off, laziness does not exist. He says about, about his, his pet um, chinchilla, he's got a little pet chinchilla, and, and he named it uh, Dump Truck. <laughs> kind of funny, but he's, he says, quote, he's never been productive in his life, this little chinchilla dump truck. He's, he's never been productive in his life. 
is what Price says. And he says he says that dump truck is is pretty much the opposite of productive and frankly rather destructive. He says, "quote I would never look at him and think of his life in terms of has he justified his right to existence. He's not paying rent. He's not performing any service, and it would be absurd to think." about his life in those terms, he says. I think animals help us remember that we shouldn't have to earn our right to exist. We're fine and beautiful and completely lovable when we're just sitting on the couch, just breathing. And if we can feel, if we can feel that way about animals that we love, well, you know, relatives, that, that we love and things like that, people in our lives who, who are never judged by their productive capacity, then we can start thinking of ourselves that way too. You see, this, this, this stuff just goes against human nature. It really does. We are not naturally good. I, I know that's, that's news to people, <laughs> some people, because there's a lot of people that just think that we are naturally good. This, this stuff goes against that because people aren't naturally good. We are naturally selfish. What is being promoted here is called universal basic income. You may have heard that term, but that that's what they're talking about. Universal basic income. And, it, and it's, oh boy, yeah, income sounds great. It sounds like a really cool thing, right? Well, there are some problems with it. <laughs> and R- Rachel Monoyou, who uh, writes for thirdway.org says this about it. it, says, don't call it a comeback. It's been here for years, even though the idea of universal basic income or UBI has been uh, discussed more of late. The proposal dates back to uh, economist Milton Freeman in the 1960s. Being universal, the idea calls for the government to give even adult, uh, uh, even an adult a fixed payment, regardless of work status, regardless of health, regardless of wealth or other criteria. Being basic, it is intended to provide foundational income for people's most fundamental needs. As policymakers grapple with how to handle the economic disruption that is hallmark of of the digital age, some are wondering if the 20th century policy idea might be right for decades ahead. Well, despite interest from some on both the left and the right, a careful examination of UBI proposals underscores the need to be cautious about its promises. UBI uh, it has, has a foot on each side of the political spectrum, and, and th- this is actually true. On the left, UBI is championed as um, a solution to deep poverty and an alternative to low-wage, undesirable labor for some workers. Proponents fear large-scale uh, worker displacement due the, to the technological age, and they argue a basic income would enable more people to become entrepreneurs, as we heard earlier, right? Pursue art, artistic endeavors, yes, and find more rewarding jobs for the long term, or simply just work less if they choose. On the right, UBI is defended as a replacement for an ineffective welfare state. These conservatives argue that cutting checks to everyone instead of maintaining a bureaucratic web that means means testing programs and benefits uh, and administration, uh, th- th- this would 
reduce government waste and, and leave people better off. But here are some causes for concern, okay? UBI is, is based on assumptions that the, the future economy that, that run counter to many economic realities uh, is in place. A, as a result, it, it creates a series of problems for the modern U.S. economy that need to be examined. Uh, here are five that, that, that this, this author came up with. Number one, jobs are changing. Many of the most ardent UBI supporters believe the policy is an answer to a world where working where work is vanishing. This is a popular view in, of course, Silicon Valley, where many predict widespread technological employment is just around the corner. But there is almost no evidence that work is ending. Instead, work is just changing. The U.S. economy employs more people today than ever with 37 million jobs added since the introduction of Microsoft Windows in 1993, and 190,000 new jobs created every month over the last year on average. As baby boomers retire, the U.S. working age population will grow more slowly than the economy as a whole, and for that reason, the U.S. is just as likely to experience a shortage of labor, which, of course, is what we're seeing now, right? To And they're, they're going to be experiencing a shortage of labor to fill growing jobs as it is to have a labor market oversaturated with workers. Many professions are <clears throat> rising in demand today, including those in healthcare, advanced manufacturing, skilled construction, education, technology, uh, hospitality, and, and business management. At this very moment, there are over 10 million job openings across the country. Did you hear me? 10 million job openings right now across the country. It's like 10.1. And, and more than half of which are, are middle-class jobs or better. While we may see a net gain in jobs over the, the coming years, disruption will still be rampant. And these jobs will be in different locations, require different skills, and offer different benefits. That's why we need policies that help workers adjust these new realities, not surrender. Reinventing post-secondary education to create more uh, 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 options outside of a four-year college degree, as well as redesigning worker pay and benefits, would do far more for the next generation of workers. Okay, let's go on to number two. Economic growth would suffer. With with a fundamental, albeit limited, income under our UBI, some Americans may choose to work part-time instead of full-time. Others may leave the workforce for years when they would have otherwise worked. Eduardo Porter writes that as almost one quarter of U.S. households make less than $25,000 a year, a $10,000 check each for, for two parents could change their decisions on how to balance work, childcare, and, and other obligations resulting in less full-time participation in the labor force. If, if people transition away from full-time work, the U.S. economy would suffer. Microeconomic theory holds that economic growth is dependent on three factors, increase in capital, advances in technology, and growth of the labor force. UBI has the potential to directly decrease the growth of the U.S. economy, namely G GDP growth. 
through through um, re- reductions to labor force participation. With GDP shrinking, tax revenues would fall. Uh huh, and this would in turn mean fewer resources to help the disadvantaged uh, or to invest in the future. Um, you know resulting in lower overall prosperity. All right, number three, UBI is increasingly expensive. Oh yes, let's look at this. The numbers speak for themselves. UBI is either very expensive or very stingy, or I would even argue both. The progressive version of UBI is uh, excessive to the point of impossibility, while the conservative version is penny pinching to uh, and punitive. Looking first at the former, the, the, consider an, an annual grant of $12,000 for all American adults age 18 to 64. This plan would cost between $1.75 trillion and $2.5 trillion. Almost two-thirds of the population, or, or 200 million people, would receive a monthly UBI check for $1,000 with a cost of approximately $2.4 trillion every year. Or, I mean, that adds up to one-eighth of the total GDP of our country. Social Security um, beneficiaries currently receiving less than $1,000 a month would also get a supplement, adding an estimated $52 billion a year. By comparison, our entire existing social safety net costs $2.6 trillion. That includes Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, unemployment insurance, and veteran benefits. Unless these these critically important programs are eliminated, a, a UBI program would need to be uh, paid for with higher taxes. Well, of course, money's got to come from somewhere, right? It's not clear whether it's even possible to raise enough revenue for this initiative. The federal government took in approximately $3.3 trillion in 2017. So a ta- taxes-only approach to funding UBI would require an unheard of 73% increase in federal revenue. How would you like that? How would you like a 73% increase in your taxes? Even if defense spending was slashed by one-third, for example, a 52% tax increase would still be required. Funneling all of the tax increase into UBI would also neglect our existing programs like Social Security, which needs obviously financial support to remain solvent uh, past 2034. All right, number four, poor families would be left uh, more vulnerable. If if significant tax hikes aren't uh, viable, then the question remains, what gets cut in order to fund UBI? Under this scenario, UBI becomes stingy and, and punitive as a vast amount of important, you know, uh, government programs would be on the chopping block. I mean, we, we just, we just covered a lot of these things. Um, you know, uh, consider the value of, of, and, 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 and what would happen if we were to lose uh, Medicaid, Medicare, disability insurance, the children's health insurance program, social security, supplemental uh, security income, um, unemployment insurance, SNAP, Section 8 housing vouchers, Pell Grants, the Earned Income Tax Credit, Temporary Assistance to Needy Families. I mean, it, it's there, there's a ton out there. And all of that uh, would obviously go away if this was implemented. I mean, we can't afford, we can't afford what we have now, let alone add, adding to it. And number five, the idea has been 
has been scarcely tested. I mean, if you look around, th- this is this is an idea that's not been out there. Finland tried it a little bit uh, with their Kella, um, which is a social insurance institute. Um, it launched a UBI trial experiment in 2017 with about 2,000 Finns uh, aged between 25 and 58. Uh, they gave them about $645 per month. Um, and and it, it, within a year, they had cut the program. It, it just it was an absolute failure failure. There's those that, that say that the, the Alaskan permanent fund uh, provides an annual cash um, dividend uh, to, uh, that's similar to UBI, but it's not. I, basically, UBI in reality would likely just simply fall short of est- estimating um, poverty while uh, or eliminating poverty while Im- imposing large economic costs and ignoring future opportunities for work. It also ignores that American life is rooted in civil, uh, civic uh, tradition and uh, of, of earning. I mean, we, we we have a system here that is based on the Bible. If you work, you eat. You don't work, you don't eat. Now, there are some safety nets there for, for everyone, and that's okay. And the churches help. Obviously, we're to do that. But the pilgrims that came over on the Mayflower learned this lesson years ago. Their, their first winter here almost killed them. They About half of them actually starved to death um, because they had this kind of system. It was only when they instituted a capitalistic system did they survive. An entitlement attitude, and that's what this is, it's an entitlement attitude, is for the young and the ignorant. Let's just stop pretending that, that it would be a good thing, can we? Let's put this one to bed. It is not something that we should be doing. And, and you, you may say, nope, I, I like it. And this is how it should be implemented. Would love to hear from you on it. And of course, you can always do that at UncommonSensePodcast.com. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast is a production of Organized Communication.